Well, good evening. This evening we are going to start a new series, which I have very cleverly entitled Moses Part 1. So I know, I know, I've got a way with titles. I'm, I'm pretty clever that way. Moses Part 1, or Moses Part 1, Out of Egypt, because what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about the Moses journey as he is called by God and leads his people out of Egypt. We are not going to get to Mount Sinai. In fact, actually, I assume that we are going to cover the bit between Exodus chapter 1 and chapter 16, which is all the way through the Red Sea, and just until we are about to get to Mount Sinai, but we're going to stop and before we get to chapter 17. So that's what we're going to be covering over the next few weeks. Uh, this will go into about the middle near the end of November. That's, that's kind of the aim for this part one. Uh, some people would wonder, are we going to continue on with the Moses series in the new year? Nope, that is not the plan. I mean, but who knows? <laughs> Anything's possible. Sometimes we just kind of roll with it around here. Uh, but but we're, the plan is to probably intersperse lots of other series and kind of have part one, part two, part three throughout the years when it comes to the, the Moses series. So are using the phrase connected to part one out of Egypt, out of Egypt for three reasons. First of all, because... Uh, that's what we're talking about, leaving Egypt, going out of Egypt. It's also the phrase that God uses with the call to Moses in chapter 3 of Exodus. And it's connected to Jesus. Uh, when Jesus is coming, uh, their family is coming back from Egypt and moving back into the land in um, Matthew chapter 2, uh, there's a reference, an Old Testament reference of out of Egypt I've called my son. And so I want to just kind of keep that phrase in the subtitle for this series to remind us, yes, we are talking about the Exodus. Yes, we're talking about a very true, real events that take place in the days of Moses around 1450 BC. Uh, but we're also talking about a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he is a, he's the same at work in the days of Moses as he was in the days of Jesus as he is in our day today. It's just kind of this, this bigger concept when it comes to this series that we're talking about. God still rescues God still rescues. In fact, if you want a truth type or truth talk at this moment, if you're online, you're, talk, you're typing. If you're here, you're talking. Although you can also talk if you're online and try to type if you're in the room. But, but, but basically, I want you to declare together with me that God still rescues. All right, we're going to do that together. Three, two, one. God still rescues. That is at the heart of this series. That is the truth that we are driving home uh, as we go through. This isn't just about some historical event, but a God who still rescues and can rescue you. In whatever your situation, in whatever your context, uh, um, Moses, when he when he's starts writing the, the, the story of God's people, he starts in Genesis chapter 1, and he writes these words. He writes, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he goes on to say, well, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. That's the beginning of the story. Darkness, darkness covering the surface of the watery depths. There was only darkness. And, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. The Spirit of God is present in the darkness. It's there hovering. It's there in the darkness. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. There was an evening... And there was a morning, one day, or the first day, day one. But, but I want you to, to remember there that there was evening first. 
from the first paragraphs of the Bible. There was an evening first, and then there was a morning. There was darkness, and then there was light. It starts with darkness, and it goes to the light. To this day, the Jewish day begins at sunset, because it begins with evening first, that darkness first, and then dawn comes. And then there is light in, in, in the first day. The, the Jewish, the Jewish uh, pattern as modeled after the first chapter of the Bible, but also like as you look at the stories of the Bible that, that Moses ri- is writing, and including the Exodus, they follow this same pattern. There is darkness, and then there was light. When we're looking at the Exodus, we're seeing an extremely dark moment in, in Israel's history, and then there is rescue, and then there is light. When you're looking at Jesus in the cross, there's, there, it is dar- a dark moment. Uh, and I'm not even talking about the, the fact that there was this, an eclipse and all that kind of stuff, but it was a dark moment. And then there was light, the resurrection. At the end of days, there, there is, there is dar- it's a darkness in, in the time of revelation. And then there is light. There, there is so much about, about life that's reflected even from the very beginning chapter of the Bible. One of the reasons I'm excited about this series and talking through this series is because I know that so many people in our world right now are feeling the, oppressed by darkness of some type. They're, they're feeling crushed by their life situation. They're, they're disappointed. They're, 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 maybe they're devastated. They're, they're depressed. They're, they're feeling hopeless. They're, they're feeling uh, helpless. They're feeling stuck. They're feeling addicted to certain things and, and, and different things. They're, they're feeling like life has fallen apart. Maybe they're feeling a dark night of their soul where they feel like God's far away from them and, and they've been maybe praying or maybe not praying, but they feel like they, they, they can't connect with God in any way and they just feel separated and lost, full of doubt. And, and discouraged, and, and they're having a hard time believing that God sees them, or that God is hearing their prayers, or that God is actually paying attention, let alone believing that he'll do something someday about their situation and their prayer requests. It's a dark, a dark beginning, a dark moment for many people. Now, if you're not in that place right now, praise God. Pra- praise God. But there are people you know who are in places just like that right now. And so our job, if we're not in places like that, is to be lights shining in the darkness. To, to, be, to be like stars shining in, the, in this dark, dark time. Uh, beacons of hope and light reminding people that God is still here. He, is ho- he hovers even in the darkness. But before the light comes, that, he, that he's present in the darkness, that he's close in the darkness, whether you can see or perceive his presence or not. The story of the Exodus begins in very great darkness, but dawn's about to break. And I believe if for you, the same thing might be true for you and, and your situation. Because so much of life, we, we, we face darkness, and we don't know when, when dawn is going to break. In fact, if you're in the middle of the night and you don't have a watch, you, you don't know that when the sun is going to come up, maybe you just, you just it's, it's, it, maybe it just feels like the darkness is going on forever. You can't see where the sun is when it's on the other side of the planet until, until dawn starts, until dawn starts to break. So we're going to be talking about the Exodus for the next, uh, for the next couple of months, and, and here, here's all that I want to accomplish today. This is, this is my whole plan for today, is all I really want to do is set the setting. I just want to set the setting for, for our Moses study. I want to set the setting for, for, for what the Bible says, the context going into the Exodus. I want to talk about what the Bible says about the setting, and I want to talk about what Egyptian history talks about when it comes to the, uh, the, the setting of, of our story. 
Uh, so we're going to look at Exodus chapter 1, at least the first half of Exodus chapter 1 today. And it's going to take us three weeks to kind of get through an introduction, which I'm not too worried about because there is a lot about Moses in, in the Bible. And, there, and so this is going to be a little bit larger of an introduction than normal, but it's going to take us three weeks before we get to the burning bush where God calls him uh, at age 80. Uh, so we're going to spend three weeks on his first 80 years and setting that up. Okay, I think that's, I think that's okay. And so maybe for this first three weeks, there is going to be a little bit of extra background information uh, connected, to, connected to Egypt and, and what's going on in Egypt. Um, it, it, there's a lot of background information when it comes to Egypt. As you might guess, that if this event actually happened as the Bible describes it happening... Meaning, there was a, millions of slaves, and they all walked out at one time after the complete devastation of the nation. You would expect, in a, in a, in a land of Egypt, which is one of the most high, uh, majorly archaeologically sifted nations in the world. I think that was a terrible way to say that. I regret having tried. But anyways... Uh, uh, one of those, one of those things that, 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 you would, that you would guess that there would genuinely be lots of evidences of this having taken place. And, and, and there is. And, and, there, and there's lots of it. So we're going to talk a lot about it throughout our whole study, but especially here in the first three weeks as we get going via introduction. Most of the, uh, most of the help that I've gotten finding the archaeological stuff has come from uh, Tim Mahoney, and which I think is pronounced Mahaney, and uh, David Rawl, who is an Egyptologist, a, a agnostic, not not a believer in the God of the Bible, like like we are. But where we're going to start this study, we're going to start in the Bible. So I'm going to start reading to you uh, from Exodus chapter one, and the first 14 verses, and we're going to see how the Bible sets the setting when it comes to Moses and and the Exodus. Chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each came with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of Jacob's descendants. Jacob is Joseph's father, right? Uh, also known as Israel. He's got two names. Uh, the total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph and all his brothers and all of that generation eventually died. But the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. A new king, verse 8 a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful. More numerous, more powerful. More numerous, more powerful. They are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. And when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter. 
with difficult labor in brick and mortar and all kinds of field work, they ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. Full stop. Okay, that is how the Bible sets the setting uh, about setting up the, the Exodus story. Because the, the big thing is, how did we get from chapter 50 of Genesis, the page before, where you have Joseph and his family in and, 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 and Egypt in highest level of leadership in, in the nation, second in charge, uh, at the grand vizier of, of, of Egypt. How, how, do we, how do we, second only to the Pharaoh, how do we get from Joseph and his family basically running Egypt to slavery? And brutal slavery. Well, that's, that's how the Bible says we got from here to there. And, and, and the reason it says is a new king arose, verse 8, who didn't know about Joseph. And he came to power. And wouldn't you know, as you look at Egyptian history, that, that is the story of the Bible exactly reflects the story from the Egyptian point of view. From the Egyptian point of view at the same time. Now, before I talk about the Egyptian history, um, I, I want to make sure that we're aware of, of something that's very, very important. There's something that you need to know when it comes to timings in, in Egyptology, in, in, in the study of Egypt. There are two different scholarly timelines connected to Egypt. There's the old chronology and there's the new chronology. The old chronology is what you'll see if you go to the British Museum. It's what you're going to see in most textbooks. That, that is, there's a chronology laid out of when each pharaoh was reigning and all, all of that sort of a thing. Um, and, but now there is a new chronology over the last 20 years or so that will in our lifetime replace the old chronology that, that is currently in the, the museums. And that's very important for our study. Why will the new chronology replace the old chronology? Two reasons. Up until now, the, 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 all the Mediterranean countries and all of their histories are locked in with Egypt's history. Because we know so much more about Egypt's history than, than any of the other countries. And so we, we connect the, the different nations' timelines to what's going on in Egypt. But there are three periods in Egypt's history where we know very, very little about. Uh, Three periods, and 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 uh, and, and what, what we had to do was we. <laughs> I'm not an Egyptologist. Uh, what what they had to do is they had to make a few guesses when it came to how long those periods lasted, and one of the periods of time they seem to have overestimated by about 200 years, and they're starting to realize that now because as they lined up every other nation's history, in order to make it work, they had to insert in a 200-year gap. As you can see with all the other nations' timelines, they had to insert a 200-year gap in order to make them all stay in sync with one another. And now they're realizing, okay, actually what had happened is we just kind of made a misguess on how long that one particular period of time ended up being. And so they're going to be shortening that. The other reason that they know that there, is, that there needs to be an adjustment is because nowadays we have, okay, please say it right, uh, uh, astronomical, I think astronomical, astronomical, uh, you know, softwares and, and, and uh, understandings where we can go back throughout history and know exactly when the, this eclipse happened and when this happened and we can, we can understand exactly when this comet was passing by because 
because of all this, this high-tech information, all this high-tech stuff that we have now. And so we can go back to the day and know, oh, that eclipse that is written about in ancient Egypt happened on this exact day in history. And so we can know now when it all kind of lines up. So because of that, and because of that, that guess on that, how long that period was, there's going to be a shifting that will be slowly taking place in closing that up and towards, towards the new chronology. Now that's quite important for us in, in our study because as I'm talking about dates and times and people, I am going based on the new chronology of the last 20 years, not the old chronology that has definitely uh, out, of, out of sync by 200 years. So or that's, that's what I'm going to be talking about when I talk about dates and times and dynasties and pharaohs and all that kind of stuff. I want to say that this work was not done by Christians. This work is just done by the scientists and the historians and, and all of that sort of thing. It just so happens, though, it just so happens, funny enough, that w when you work on the new chronology, which seems to be based on reality, uh, that the timelines that the Bible speaks of when it comes to events just so happen to now match up. With, with the, the histories, uh, and so you have the Bible's version of events, and then you've got the Egyptian version of events, and they just tend to line up right at the same moment. Uh, funny, funny that. Uh, so, for example, in, in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, when, when it's written that the Exodus took place 480 years before, uh, before Solomon built his temple, uh, that places it around 1450 B.C., right around 1450 B.C. It seems like when you look at Egypt's history at that time in the New Chronology, you're like, okay, yes, that's, we see the evidences of that there. Now, maybe you've heard it said uh, that there is no archaeological evidences connected to the Exodus out of Egypt. That is completely not true. That is completely not true. The problem has been that archaeologists were looking for evidences of the Exodus at around 1250 B.C. That is when the, the, the scholars were, uh, were looking for the evidence. That is not when the Bible places the Exodus. The Bible has always placed the Exodus at 1450 B.C. But scholars were convinced that it was around 1250 B.C. And when they looked at that timeline for evidences of the Exodus for a massive slave force in Egypt that suddenly walked out, out of Egypt and, and all the devastation of the plague, they couldn't find any evidence at all of, of a slave force leaving and, and, and the devastation of Egypt around 1250 B.C. Which makes sense to me because the Bible doesn't say that anything happened at that time either. And so when they were looking uh, a couple centuries later, they weren't seeing any evidences because it's not there. Because where they should have been looking was a couple centuries earlier. Anyways, so that's a little bit of, of just new chronology, old chronology, and, and just kind of setting up this, this series when it comes to the, the two stories. And I'm telling you, they are in sync. The, the story as the Bible plays it out from, from God's people's point of view and from Egypt's point of view. Five years ago, which is incredible to me, five years ago I did a story on Joseph. I can't believe it's been uh, five years already. And, and in, that, in that series, uh, there's lots of archaeology and, and archaeological background that is kind of connected to this series a little bit. Because Joseph is the story just before the Exodus story, even though it's several hundred years in between. Um, there is so much archaeology connected to God's people going into Egypt and setting up there. Uh, but if you want that, that's some bonus information. You can go back on YouTube and you can find out more about that. I'm going to be very brief today and, and maybe too brief when I talk about some of the Joseph archaeology just because uh, I don't have time to give it all the depth that I gave it 
uh, five years ago, but you can, you can know where that is and go back and look at that. In our Joseph series, we talked about how we know now archaeologically exactly where Jacob and, the, and his, 70, uh, his family of 70 moved to when they went to Egypt. They founded, they moved to Goshen like the Bible describes, and they moved to this place and they founded a city which is called Avaris, Avaris in, 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 um, in the land of Goshen, like the Bible says. Jacob built his house. This is, this is a model of Jacob's house based on the, the foundations and stuff like that that are there in the sand. Jacob built his house uh, at the, 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 as, the, uh, as the patriarch of, of the clan that moved in there. Uh, right in the strategic moment, this is a very unique house. It is the only house of its kind in Egypt. Okay? This is not an Egyptian house. This house is a reflection of a house that is built not in Egypt, not in the Holy Land, but way up north in this place called Haran. And Haran, if you remember in the Bible, is where Jacob lived for 20 years, where he was serving Laban's household, and, and he got a couple of wives, many, four, uh, but let's not get into that right now. Uh, so he, he, uh, but he lived in that area for 20 years, and all of a sudden you see one house at this founding point, right where Jacob and his family are coming and moving into, and, and it's this, this is a uh, model of, of Jacob's house from the land of Haran, not Egyptian at all. Uh, 200 years is freebie after Avaris was uh, abandoned. I don't want to give this away, but I just did. Uh, after it's abandoned, uh, after the Exodus, uh, it, is, it gets a new name, which the Bible keeps referring to it as, as the city of Ramses. So when we, when we look and we see in the Bible the city of Ramses, that is, the, that is the newer name for this same location. Technically, it's on the other side of the river, but it's the same location. Okay, so when, when, uh, when Jacob died, as was the tradition, they, they knocked down his house, and they leveled it, and then Joseph built his palace on the exact same plot of land. Uh, you can look in the back garden. There's lots of this in our previous study. In the back garden, all of uh, Joseph's, Joseph's tomb, it's the pyramid tomb, if you can see it on the screen at the very, very top, and, and his 11 brothers, they're all buried on this, in this back garden of this, of this estate, and yeah, so that's where Joseph and, you know, Issachar and Asher and all, and all of them uh, lived there, and so, uh, yeah, that's Joseph's palace, we, we have the footprint of that there, and the tombs of all the brothers, this is in Avaris. According to archaeology, the, the founding of Avaris was a, a small beginning, less than 100 people. According to the Bible, the founding of Avaris was 70 people, right? 70 people. No Egyptians in Avaris at the beginning here. All of them are genetically Semitic, and that is what, what Jacob's family is. Joseph, Jacob's family are all uh, genetically uh, Semitic, Semites. So that's, that's what's going on in the, in the founding of Avaris. But just like what we read in verse 6 and 7 uh, of Exodus here, after Joseph and his brothers died, Avaris grew quickly. It, it just became this massive, one of the, the next slide, it became the largest city, not, not the largest, one of, one of the very largest those cities in the world at its time. It, it, it just massively expanded from, and it became the governing center of the north, eventually, of the, the north of, of Egypt the northern capital of the nation, and it became the summer residence of the pharaohs uh, in, in the days ahead. Massive, massive city. Not only did Avaris grow, uh, primarily of, of Jacob's family and, and his descendants, uh, 
they started more and more cities in the land of Goshen. We are, we've discovered uh, several cities of, of Jacob's uh, descendants on the next map there. And, and the Israelites, they're just multiplying like crazy. You can see the dots all around. They just, they just filled the land of, of Goshen, uh, just as the Bible describes, as they just kept multiplying. So, so Joseph's pharaoh, uh, just as a recap, was named as Amenemhat III. And here's a picture of good old Amenemhat III. He's the guy where there's the, the, he has the dream and then the, the, the floodings and all that kind of stuff. It's all in Egyptian history. And, and you, can, you can go back and listen to the Joseph series if you want to hear more about that. Well, Amenemhat was Joseph's pharaoh. And then he eventually died. And Joseph apparently continued on as the, the second, the grand vizier of the nation uh, until his death, the Bible says, at 110 years old. And he started overseeing, after Amenemhat, several very short lifespan pharaohs. I guess in my imagination, pharaohs kind of lived a long time, but no, not in Egypt. There was a lot of them that had extremely short reigns. And once Joseph uh, died, after all these sh short-lived pharaohs, the nation of leadership of I Egypt just seems to fall apart. And for six years, you have no overarching pharaoh for the land of Egypt. It's just local leadership um, connected to around the area. And, uh, and until this guy gets crowned pharaoh, and crowned pharaoh, yeah, that's, that's what it said in the, in the book. Uh, crowned pharaoh, and he takes on the coronation name of Amenemhat V. Amenemhat V. And he's the first pharaoh to, to kind of pull back together the nation after, after Joseph's death. And he sets up a palace for himself and for the future pharaohs in Avaris. In Avaris, the city founded by Jacob. Which is kind of weird. Why would the pharaoh set up his, his summer palace in Avaris? Well, according to, according to the, 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 um, the, the, the historians connected to the Library of Alexandria, Egypt, which burned down, as you might remember, uh, surprise, apparently Amenemhat V was of mixed descent. He wasn't fully Egyptian. He, apparently his mother was a descendant of Joseph. And so he was connected to that family, and he lived. Now you're like, this sounds like fantasy. How could, that e how could anybody think that this would be the case? You, it, it makes perfect sense if you understand how marriage worked in the ancient world, especially when it came to power and politics. You would marry into the most powerful families uh, in, in the nation in order to stake your claims. I, I told you that the nation was, was falling apart. There was no centralized leadership. Whose family has the most power in all of Egypt? It's Joseph's family. It's Joseph's family. It's his kids. Marrying into Joseph's family is going to massively give you an edge in a time where there's, there's no centralized um, leadership in the nation. So you've got Amenemhat the, the fifth, and he's, and he's only pharaoh for three years, although that seemed to be a long time at that, in that particular moment in history. And... Um, and all, all the time, there's massive infighting in, amongst the pharaohs and potential pharaohs of Egypt. Whilst God's people, the, the people of Israel, are just multiplying like crazy. And they are getting so much power and, and authority. Um, what did the Bible say? And I don't know if you've ever read it this way before. But the Bible describes it as saying that, assigned taskmasters before that, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful. Maybe you thought, oh, they're mighty warriors. 
No, no, no. They are political giants in this nation. They are so powerful politically in, in the nation of, of Egypt. And they're spreading throughout the land. It is at this moment during Amenemhat III's reign is that, the, the, that uh, Jacob's family doesn't just remain in Goshen like those cities before. They start spreading all the way down the Nile River. And, and they, go just, they just spread all throughout. And they, they, they uh, go to the fertile lands of, of the whole Nile. Now, as a random fact for you, why stop where I already am? Um, Egyptologist David Rawl, not a Christian, not a Jewish person. He doesn't have any stake in this claim. He writes that after Joseph died, his son Manasseh becomes the next grand vizier, which makes sense. That's, that's kind of how it worked. Your, your firstborn son t- took over your role in, in, in politics there. And, and Manasseh takes over in, at the beginning of the 13th d- dynasty. I'm going to say dynasty. Uh, Manasseh, as Grand Vizier, he starts being a part of choosing the next pharaohs, and, and these pharaohs are not lasting. We're talking 22 pharaohs in eight years. 22 pharaohs in eight years. The, 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 it's a mess. It's Joseph's family that is the, the anchor family for, for the nation throughout this, this period of time. It's even been uh, suggested that, that Manasseh himself is, was elected pharaoh at, at one point under his Egyptian name, uh, Ranseneb. Now, now of, of course they have Egyptian names. If you look at people in the Bible like Daniel, he's got his Babylonian name and he's got his Hebrew name and Esther has got her Persian name. And they, it's, this is just how it, they've got their Hebrew names and then they've got their, their uh, Babylonian names. So uh, Ranseneb, and according to the record, royal canon of Turin, which I'm, it's up on the screen here, this is the royal canon of Turin. You're like, that did not age well, right? That is a very, very old document. That is from uh, 1,250 B.C., thereabouts, give or take 25, 35 years. And that's, that's 250 years older than King David's reign, right? This is very old. It, it, it's, it's doing pretty good for, for as old as it is. This is the most important list of Egyptian kings that we have. This is, this is the, the ancient one. And according to this list, Joseph's son Manasseh, under his uh, Egyptian name, was the 14th ruler of the 13th dynasty in, in Egypt. Uh, he, he only survived being Pharaoh for four months. <laughs> Again, not, not a long, long job uh, for most Pharaohs here in this time period. And then when he became Pharaoh, his brother, Ephraim, takes over as the Grand Vizier of the nation, and he serves his brother and then the other Pharaohs until he also dies. Okay, during the thir- 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 early years of the 13th dynasty with Ephraim and Manasseh as these, these grand viziers in leadership, David Rawl says that according to contemporary documents of the time, Joseph's daughter, not mentioned in the Bible, that is not a surprise at all, but she's not mentioned in the Bible, um, she, she married the queen's brother, Queen uh, Aya's brother, who is the wife of the first king of the fir- 13th dynasty. I know there's lots of details here. Uh, you can ignore as much as you want to, uh, but I'm just trying to make the point that this, that the story of the Bible is in sync with the story from the Egyptian point of view. Uh, and, and so marries into that family. Again, that politically makes exactly sense. That makes sense. That's how it worked back then. The most powerful people are, are strengthening their claim by marrying into the most powerful family, Joseph's family. If you are, if you are Jewish, your, your family is extremely powerful. If you are Egyptian, you might say that family is scarily powerful in the land. But over time, as the Bible says here, Joseph and all his brothers and that whole generation eventually died. 
After Ephraim dies, uh, a new king rises, uh, says the Bible and says Egyptian history. A new line of native Egyptian pharaohs, not, not mixed race. Now, I, I want to just remind you, like, it, Joseph's kids aren't fully Jewish. They're half Egyptian, right? You remember in the Bible, Joseph, Joseph marries an Egyptian. She, she is the daughter of the priest of On. Uh, I think his name is Potiphar. There seems to be a lot of Potiphar's. It seems like the main name uh, in Egypt uh, besides Pharaoh and Potiphar. Okay, you start your name with a P, you're a big deal in, in Egypt, I guess. So you, you, you've got that going on there. Uh, and so his, his family, his is Egyptian or, or half Egyptian and half, um, well, this next era of pharaohs is only Egyptian. They're pure Egyptian. And they, they, they take over from way to the south, Luxor, actually, down, way down the south of the Nile. And they seize power. They're not connected genetically to Joseph at all. And, and things instantly change for the Jewish people when, when this group uh, takes over. And starting with the very first king, uh, Sebekatep III, whose uh, picture is on the screen. A very good looking, I can't even tell. Anyway, so he, he, he um, starting with him, he, he starts, they're in Luxor, way down to the south. He instantly in, in, enslaves all the Jewish people south, in the south of the Nile. Those who had spread down south. And, and he confiscates all of their land. He confiscates all of their cattle by royal decree. And all of a sudden, with this new king, instantly the Jewish people are enslaved down to the south. And then over the next couple years, all of the Jewish people in all of the nation become enslaved. This does two things. It highly strengthens the 13th dynasty with Sebekatep because they have a huge now slave force at their disposal in, in, in the nation. And, um, yeah, and it goes, it goes from strength to strength for them until God shows up. But we'll, we'll get to that in a, in a moment. Uh, this is the Brooklyn Papyrus. Uh, this is one of the oldest preserved writings in the world connected to medicine, just as a, just a fun fact for you. As you can tell, it's talking about snakes and how to deal with snake bites obviously. And also it talks about, um, it talks about, it mentions a lot of slaves by name. This is a copy of the original. This copy is from around 650 BC. The original is from this time period, the 1500s uh, in the 13th dynasty of Egypt. And it's, and it's, it's written down near Luxor, down to the south. And it's writing about different slaves and all that kind of stuff by name. And we discover that at least half of the slave names are clearly Hebrew. They're clearly, in fact, some of the names are just like straight from the Bible, not the same people. Uh, they tend to name themselves after themselves over and over again. But you see like a slave named Manasseh and a slave named Asher. And, and even I think the Hebrew uh, midwives names seem to make appearances in, in the slave lists. And this is down south, about 50% where, where there was less Jewish people, but they're, they're enslaved. Uh, and this is from that same period of time. Um, the, these, after Sebekatep, Sebekatep III, um, he's only pharaoh for three years, but just changes the country, changes the situation. After him follows two very powerful, in fact, considered the most powerful pharaohs of the 13th dynasty, and they're, they're brothers. Um, the, the first one is Neferhotep, and we know that he was reigning during an 11-year period over the top of 1565 B.C. 
And how we know that is because it describes this uh, very unique uh, double eclipse thing that, that was going on there. And so we know exactly what date that was happening, and it happened during his reign. 1565 B.C. Now think about this. When is the Exodus? 1450 B.C. Thank you, everybody, uh, who didn't say anything at once. Okay, so 1450 B.C. How old is Moses at the Exodus? 80 years old. Right on. Spot on. So how, how from, from that double eclipse, 1565 B.C., how many years before 1450 is that? Five years. Amazing. We are now at this double eclipse with Neferotep during his reign five years before the birth of Moses. Okay. We've got that one nailed down. That is a date that we know that's taking place right at that time. Okay. Because of the, because of the double eclipse and all that sort of stuff. So that's where we're at in this journey. He is, he is Pharaoh for 11 years. Again, the, the, the oppression of God's people is out of control during his, during his reign. After him, his brother basically is the next Pharaoh, which isn't entirely true. His, his, first his son is Pharaoh, but then he mysteriously dies very in a few weeks. Uh, and uncle takes over. I don't know how that happened. What, what corruption? I don't know. But, but when, his, when that guy becomes Pharaoh, he takes on the name at, at his coronation of Kenafere or Kenafere's. Uh, depending on, on which document you're reading. And this guy is going to be very important to our story. Uh, we're going to talk about him tomorrow, but this is Canaferi. Because this guy, Canaferi, according to the historian Artapanus, and he was, he was working in the British, no, not the British Museum. That's totally way later. He was in the Library of Alexandria where he has all the access to all the ancient documents, he's the one who writes that Canaphares is the pharaoh in whose household Moses is raised in. That's, that's the connection. Now, we'll talk more about that next week. Uh, but, you know, just depending. If I get a lot of feedback, stay away from the archaeology. All right, well, I'll pray about it, and we can fight about it next week. All right, uh, okay, so, so that's, that, that's where we're going, and we're right now getting close to the birth of Moses, but we're going to let off there because we're going to talk about the birth of Moses more next week. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, the Egyptian story. Uh, anthropological studies connected to skeletal remains in the city of Avaris make the same testimony that we're talking about. Show the Jewish population goes to rich and thriving, long lifespans. I mean, Joseph has, his lifespan is 110 years. After the Exodus, Joshua's lifespan is 110 years. Well, during, during all of a sudden, there's a shift from these rich tombs to just uh, this, this obviously a completely enslaved people with brutal living conditions. They developed ser serious health problems instantly associated with poverty and malnutrition. They have parasitic diseases all of a sudden. Anemia impacts a third of all of the population. You have these Harris lines in the long bones of, of their, of their, well, of their bones, uh, uh, which, which indicate, uh, which indicate uh, stunted growth. Life expectancy plummets down to 32. 28 to 32 years of age. Uh, again, that, that's massive, uh, massive plummeting of, of age span. This sudden harsh uh, enslavement of the Jewish people during the 13th dynasty, it's written about in, in that, like the Brooklyn papyrus, and it's clearly evidenced by the bones and, and all that kind of stuff happening right at the exact moment that the Bible says it should be happening in the 1500s in the 1500s B.C. That's what's in the dirt. That's what's in the ancient records, just as the Bible describes. And I, and I want to just kind of hit that uh, very quickly, quickly because, because according to the New, 
new chronology, the, the Bible is saying, here is the story. And Egyptian history is saying, yes, this is, the, this is the story. And maybe some of the facts might wobble a little bit. Like maybe Manasseh wasn't actually a pharaoh for four months, okay? Maybe that was just something that, you know, people are kind of putting together the facts and it didn't quite work out that way. No big deal. No big deal. That's, that, I'm just saying that that's what some historians say. It's fine with me whether Manasseh is uh, a, a pharaoh or not. He doesn't have to be the 14th pharaoh of the 13th dynasty. The main thing, though, is how clearly Egyptian history is in sync with what the Bible describes. And when the Bible describes, uh, and how the Bible has always described it, the events. Again, let me read these verses again from Exodus after just hearing this from the Egyptian side. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each came with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. Less than 100. 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died. But the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. That's exactly how it was described. A new king, verse 8, who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful. Are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let us, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. And when war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses, which is of ours, and uh, supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. Again, yes, all the sides agree. That's what happened. That's what happened. It was ruthless, says the Bible. And ruthless shows the bones in the ground of Avaris. The, the Bible is true. The, the, the Bible is true. The, these events, they, they really did happen. And I hope that as we go through the, the study that you will enjoy seeing over and over again, the Bible is historically accurate and reliable as a document. And just as you can trust what the Bible says about history, so you can trust what the Bible says about the God of history. The story of the Exodus is true, like the Bible says, the archaeology confirms that, and I hope that you grasp then how much that means there is hope for you in your life and in your situation. Because if God can do what he did during the days of the Exodus for them, how much more can he do for you in our days, in our generation? And you're like, how can you say that, Brian? Because the Bible, that's like this magical era where all of this amazing stuff happened. No, you're living through the Exodus. This is not a magical era if you're, if you're living in Exodus. This is not one of those eras that like, woohoo, yeah. This is not one of those eras. Yes, God rescues them out of that awful darkness eventually. Eventually. And yes, he rescues us out of our own dark situations eventually, but it's way better for us because not only does he rescue us out of our life situations eventually, but he forgives our sins forever in Jesus as we give our lives to him. 
Not only does he forgive us forever in, in Jesus as we give our lives to him, but he also fills us with his Holy Spirit. And, and this Holy Spirit which is there to comfort, to guide, to lead us into all truth, to give us the heart of God, to fill us with the, the fruit of, of the Spirit, to empower us, to connect us to God in a way that, that they could never even imagine in, in, that, in that generation. The same God who rescued them eventually can not only rescue you, but bring about grace and forgiveness and new life, in fact, eternal life with God for you. It's amazing stuff. There's so, it's so much better for us in, in our day and in our generation. There was evening, and then there was morning. Day one. Darkness before light. That's this page one premise of the Bible, fundamental pr principle, darkness before light. The whole Bible goes through situation after situation, uh, creation, exodus, Jesus on the cross, the return of Jesus. Alistair Matheson, in, in his new book, Treasures of Darkness, writes this. He says, why do we despair when the days are dark? Why do we despair when the days are dark? Hearts are troubled, minds are distressed, livelihoods are under threat when the strong falter and the wise come short. These are exactly the places where God is most likely to show up. The Spirit of God hovers over the surface in the darkness before there is light, before the light is separated. If you today are feeling crushed, if you're feeling crushed by life's challenges, if you are in a season of, of darkness, I'm so sorry, but both the Bible and the history of the world agree that there is hope for you and your future, no matter how difficult it is for you to perceive, no matter how far away the presence of God appears to you or seems to you at this moment, God is closer than you ever dared to imagine in, in this moment for you. And, and it is our prayer here that God will quickly help you, that he will quickly intervene in your darkness and bring you into the light. And if that takes a while, if it takes a while for God to rescue you, um, as it did for, it took him a while to rescue the Egyptians, the people out of Egypt, the Israelites out of Egypt, may God do in your life right now, in your darkness, such a light-giving work that if even as you exist in a dark moment, you are able to shine with the brightness of heaven. Shine like stars in the universe in the context of darkness. There is hope for you and your future. And there's hope for you right now. Right now in Jesus. Just like you can count on the Bible being historically true, you can count on the Bible theologically being true, and that God sees you, He loves you, He cares about you, and He is here. He is here. My challenge for you today is this. Take your darkest situation to God in hope-filled prayer. Asking for his help and rescue for whatever your need. And again, the key word I want you to dial in on that one is hope-filled prayer. Hope-filled prayer. Remember, our God actually does stuff. He intervenes. Hope-filled prayer. Let me pray for you. Let me pray for you, whatever your context and whatever your situation. God, I ask that you would invade people's lives who need your help who need your light, who need your intervention, who need your guidance. God, who are dis those who are discouraged, I pray that, you're, that you would reveal that you are present and that you are powerful and that you're paying attention. 
God, I ask for your intervention in, in, in everybody's hearts and, and, and lives in, in their challenging situation. I ask for your help, for your rescue, and for your grace, and for the work of your spirit, uh, strengthening each heart and life. Maybe you're out there and, and you have been uh, away from Jesus for a while or for all your life. There is hope for you in your future as you give your life to Jesus, as you turn to Jesus. And I encourage you to turn to Jesus right now. And, and, and I encourage you to pray something like this. God, have mercy on me. Forgive me. Help me. Fill me with your spirit. I now dedicate the entirety of my life to you whether things go good or whether things are challenging, my life will now belong to you. Rescue me, help me, forgive me, bless me. Yeah. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.